Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Sunday, December 20th, 2009, a hiker came across a vacant white jeep parked up at a trailhead in the foothills of the mystical Superstition Mountains, roughly 60 miles east of Phoenix, Arizona. Over the years, the otherworldly superstitions and its 270 square miles of rocky, cactus-covered hills, canyons and boulder-strewn arroyos have proved an increasingly popular destination for intrepid hikers looking for something a little more challenging away from the beaten track. As such, it isn't unusual to find the odd car left parked up for days on end at any one of the many trailheads dotted throughout the area. But something about the loneliness of this one particular jeep and the thick layer of dust that covered it gave the hiker pause for thought. Things only became more alarming when the hiker came across an eerily abandoned campsite a little further up the trail that looked like it hadn't been used in days. Though it had been disturbed by a recent storm, a significant stash of food, water and personal belongings suggested that whoever had set the camp up had not intended to be gone from it for too long. Cynthia Burnett was at home in Denver, Colorado the following day when she received a call from the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office inquiring as to the whereabouts of her 35-year-old son, Jesse Capon. A check on the license plate of the Jeep returned Jesse's name and given the circumstances, the police had been surprised to find that he wasn't on a missing persons list. As a teenager, Capon had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had dropped out of high school, despite routinely scoring near the top of his class in exams. For 11 years, he worked the same job as a bellhop at the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Denver. In the years leading up to his disappearance, Jesse, who had few friends and struggled socially, worked every hour available to rack up enough holiday time to take an extended four-week break from work 
he told his mother only that he was planning to go trekking through Arizona's Tonto National Forest. The name is a little misleading, since despite the pine forests found to the north, large swathes of its 2.9 million acres, in particular to the south, are in fact comprised of rugged flatlands and cactus-covered desert. So quite why Jesse would be camping at the southern edge of it, in the Superstition Mountains, his mother had no idea. Then the officer on the phone asked her if she'd ever heard of the lost Dutchman's mine, but the phrase meant nothing to her. It was only when she went to search her son's room that things started to fall into place. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. On Jesse's bookshelves and strewn across a desk, Cynthia found an extensive collection of books and maps, all relating to the same thing. The mysterious whereabouts of a mythical, lost gold mining claim, known today as the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Even before rumours of the Lost Dutchman first snaked their way out of the superstitions, ethereal, sun-scorched crags and vast towers of jagged red rock, the project high up out of the desert brush, like desperate fingers reaching up from the earth. The area was known as a cursed place, where any who dared to venture there would be lucky to come out alive. Like many who'd come before him, Jesse Capon had been ensnared by the golden radiance of the lost Dutchman Enigma, unable to resist the temptation that he might just be able to do the one thing that nobody else had done, and find it. But there is good reason why you're just as likely to hear it spoken of as the cursed, lost Dutchman's mine. The story is said by some to have all begun in December 1879 with the arrival of a stranger appearing one night in the Mexican community of Phoenix, Arizona. On the brink of death, with his hands and feet torn up, and his face bloodied and bruised, the man staggered forward, begging anyone to help him. As he would later go on to explain, he and a friend had been prospecting for gold in the superstitions when they came across a narrow gully, at the bottom of which was a small stretch of granite, covered an inch thick in black sand. Looking down at it, they were amazed to see large flecks of gold glinting in the harsh sunlight. For years, rumours abounded among the Mexican community that the mountains, which only 30 years before were part of the nation of Mexico, were littered with gold. Believing they'd finally discovered the source of those tantalising rumours, the men soon found themselves fishing out golden nuggets the size of beans from the sand as they raced to gather as much of it as they could. Then a strange look came over one of the men, As the other followed the direction of his stare, he looked up to see the silhouette of a woman staring down at them from high up on a ledge, who then swiftly disappeared. Moments later, she returned, flanked by over 50 men of the Native American Diné tribe, also known as Apache. It is said that for the Diné, the superstitions are a deeply sacred place, to be protected at all costs, 
As the men tried to make a break for it, they were quickly captured and taken off to a nearby cave, where, after hours of torture, the stranger's friend was killed. Driven by fear, the man had somehow managed to escape, then walked for what seemed like days and nights, stumbling through the treacherous landscape until he reached the safety of Phoenix. All the gold they'd found, he'd been forced to leave behind, and where he'd found it exactly, he could no longer remember. Here's something you didn't know about me. I'm a terrible sleeper. Getting to sleep is fine, but once I'm up, whether it's the cat deciding it wants fed at 4am, or the little human in the other bedroom having a bad dream, there's no going back. Suddenly my mind is awash with what feels like every thought I've ever had in my entire life. I'll get another hour at best if I'm lucky. But not anymore, since I found the most effective CBD sleep product from Sunday Scaries. It helps me decompress and quiet my mind, so when I fall asleep, I can stay sleeping for longer. Whether you need to de-stress your crazy busy life and relax, or just get back to sleeping well, or tune out all the noise and reclaim your happiness, check out all the amazing CBD products at sundayscaries.com and use my promo code UNEXPLAINED for 25% off. That's promo code UNEXPLAINED for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. In the wake of the California gold rush of 1848-55, to thousands continued to prospect all over the United States in the hope of striking rich. With its enormous, uncultivated terrain newly up for grabs, Arizona, in particular the region encompassing the superstitions, proved especially enticing. Though some fortunes were made, there is little mention of any lost gold claims on record, until, that is, September 1st, 1892, when a peculiar story appeared in the Arizona Weekly Gazette. Titled A Queer Quest in Search for Gold, it read, Mrs. E. W. Thomas, formerly of Thomas Ice Cream Parlors, is now in the Superstition Mountains, engaged in work, usually deemed strange to the woman's sphere. She is prospecting for a lost mine, to the location of which she believes she holds the key. Mrs. E. W. Thomas, named as her husband, was in fact Julia Thomas. Born Julia Kahn in December 1862 in Louisiana to German immigrant parents, Julia married Emil Thomas in December 1883 and moved to Phoenix two years later, where the couple ran a bakery and ice cream parlour. In 1890, however, Emil walked out on his wife, leaving her with a hefty mortgage and considerable debts to pay in relation to the business. Against all the odds, Julia, only 28 at the time, managed to sustain the business and over time began to rid herself of debt. When Emil was finally tracked down in 1891, Julia was granted a divorce, along with all the land, the store and personal property she'd once owned with her husband. It is certainly strange then that only a year later she sold it all to venture into the mountains in search of untold riches with seemingly little knowledge and zero experience in the field. As many have suggested, it all comes back to Thomas Waltz. 
For reasons not entirely known, the year before her sudden foray into the mountains, Julia took in an elderly man named Thomas Waltz, who'd lost his home in the Great Salt River Flood. The river which runs through Phoenix and to the north of the Superstitions was the scene of a disastrous flash flood in February 1891, destroying much of the small towns and communities that had grown up in its vicinity. After losing his home, the more or less destitute Waltz was then struck down with pneumonia and appears to have turned to Julia for help. The relationship would be short-lived, however, when on the 25th of October 1891, the then 83-year-old Waltz succumbed to the infection and died in Julia's home. Within a year, Julia had sold up everything and struck out for the superstitions. Julia Thomas would ultimately fail in her quest to find what she was looking for after spending three weeks in the mountains, assisted by two brothers, Reinhardt and Hermann Petrask. But slowly over time, the strange story of what compelled her to go there eventually eked out from the three of them. As they each claimed, despite Waltz's financial predicament at the end of his life, in one way, he wasn't quite as destitute as he seemed, as he apparently explained to Julia late one night in her home as he lay on his bed only moments from death. It is said his tale began back when he was a younger man, living in Sonora, Mexico, just south of Arizona, when he was introduced to someone named Miguel Peralta. Back in the early 1800s, the Peralta family are said to have established a number of mines in the Superstition Mountains, but when war broke out between Mexico and the United States in 1848, the family faced the prospect of losing all of it. Fearing the imminent ceding of the territory to the states, the Peraltas gathered as many people, wagons and mules they could muster, and swiftly headed into the mountains. However, after salvaging everything they could, and sealing the mines behind them. Shortly after setting off for home, the expedition team was attacked and killed by a tribe of Diner. Since the Diner had no material use for the gold, it was simply left to lie where it fell. This story was apparently told to Thomas Waltz, who was also said to have been given a map by Miguel Peralta to help him recover the mines and their lost treasure. Sometime later, Waltz is said to have travelled to Tucson, Arizona, where he shared the story with a man named Jacob Weiser. Then together, the two men ventured into the superstitions, equipped with Peralta's map and directions, and struck out towards Sombrero Butte, more commonly known as Weaver's Needle, at the foot of which the entrance to the main mine was said to be located. After slogging their way through endless clusters of cacti and yucca under the baking sun, the men apparently came across three other men breaking rocks at the foot of a narrow canyon at the precise spot they'd been searching for. Believing them to be Native American, Waltz and Weiser, who'd come prepared for just such a scenario, promptly opened fire, killing all three of them instantly. 
As one version of the story has it, the man in fact turned out to be Mexican and former employees of Miguel Peralta, who'd come back to the mountain secretly to find the gold for themselves. As for the two Jacobs, after discovering one of Peralta's abandoned mines, along with a significant stash of gold, they themselves were then ambushed by a group of Diner. Both managed somehow to escape, but got separated in the process. Waltz managed to return safely back to Phoenix, but Thomas Pfizer was not so lucky. Having been mortally wounded, he made it only as far as a nearby village of the Native American Pima tribe. There, it is said he was taken in by former cavalryman and successful miner in his own right, John D. Walker, who owned a ranch nearby. A week later, Pfizer died from his injuries. It isn't known if Waltz managed to bring any gold back from the superstitions, or if he ever returned to try again. What is known is that in August 1878, sometime later, Jacob Waltz effectively declared himself bankrupt and struck up a deal to sell all his possessions, including his home, for the modern equivalent of 1500 US dollars to a man named Andrew Starrar. Part of the deal also required Starrar to look after Waltz should he ever become too old and infirm to look after himself. As such, it seems unlikely that Waltz had brought any gold back after the first attempt. Being by then a tired and jaded 68 years old, it seems equally unlikely that he ever made it back there, if the mine had even existed at all, before his death in 1891. As rumours of the mine began to spread, following Julia Thomas's failed attempts to find it, many began to question if it wasn't all one big hoax, or perhaps whether it wasn't a mine at all up there, but simply a stash of looted and abandoned gold, also known as massacre gold, that Waltz and Weiser had discovered. Julia Thomas, however, remained convinced that the mine was there. Despite being burned by her first attempt to find the mine, Julia Thomas continued to raise money and support for a second bite at the cherry, but was ultimately unable to return to the mountains. Then in 1894, perhaps wounded by accusations that she'd been sucked in by nothing but a tall tale from a dying, deluded old man, Thomas took the extraordinary move to publish the exact details that Waltz had told her explaining all to the editor of Phoenix's Saturday Evening Review. She revealed where the mine could be found. It was, she claimed, located near a two-room house that lay in the mouth of a cave on the side of a slope near a particular gulch in the superstitions. Just across the gulch, she continued, about 200 yards opposite the house in the cave was a tunnel well covered and concealed by bushes this mine was the richest in the world, according to Dutch Jacob. Confusingly, Jacob Waltz, who was of German heritage, was called Dutch Jacob, owing to the fact that Dutch was an anglicised version of the word Deutsch, meaning German in English, hence the phrase Lost Dutchman's Mine, as it would come to be known. 
Julia then offered also that some distance above the tunnel, a little further up the mountain, was a small shaft that led directly into the mine, from which you could easily reach the rich gold ledge inside. Once there, it was possible to simply pick flakes off the ridge of almost pure gold. In the years following Julia's incredible proclamation, many more attempts to find the mine were made, but despite some believing they'd got close, no one was able to claim it. Then, more than 30 years later, in 1931, one man finally did. Possibly. One lesser-known fact about Unexplained is that it actually started life as a website built through Squarespace, which I heard about from an advert on one of my favourite podcasts. Having no idea where to even begin with publishing my own, it was only when I realised how easy it would be with Squarespace that I finally went ahead and did it. Whether you're a dreamer, a maker, or simply a doer, Squarespace can provide you with all the tools you need to bring your creative ideas to life. With their dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and instantly begin marketing your brand. Combining cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, with Squarespace you have the ability to customize the look and feel, settings, products, and more with just a few clicks. And when you create your website, you'll get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There'll be nothing to patch or upgrade ever and 24-7 award-winning customer support always on hand whenever you need it. Go to squarespace.com forward slash unexplained for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code unexplained to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. In 1983, is the archetypal tale of the American dream. Born in 1864, Ruth is thought to have emigrated to the US from Germany around 1880 in search of a better life for himself. In 1888, Ruth and his second wife, with whom he had two children, moved out to Kansas to become farmers. When this venture failed, he set up a barber shop and used his spare time to attend veterinary college which in turn led eventually to a solid job working for the US Department of Agriculture, Bureau of Animal Industry. But what really excited Ruth was the idea of lost treasure, in particular, lost gold mines. In 1913, he received a letter that would change his life forever. Sent by his then 26-year-old son, Erwin, it detailed an unbelievable story. Erwin, who despite having trained as a vet like his father, was working in far Texas managing a car dealership and had somehow befriended an officer of the Mexican rebel army who were embroiled in an attempted revolution at the time. Having discovered that Erwin was a vet, the officer offered him a job trying to cure Texas tick fever in the livestock that his army were capturing during their various military excursions. With the fever eradicated, the livestock could then be sold to buy weapons. Erwin agreed to take the job. A few months later, while working in the rebel army's camp, he was apparently recognised by a prisoner who the army had recently captured. 
who claimed to have once taught Spanish to Erwin at his high school. The man, named Gonzales, who was due to be executed, pleaded with Erwin to help him get his family back safely to Mexico. For payment, he was to ask Gonzales' wife to hand over a set of maps revealing a series of long-abandoned mines that had once belonged to the Gonzales family. Taking pity on the man, Erwin accepted the offer and duly carried out the task. Sure enough, the man's wife gave him the maps in return. After conducting a preliminary scout of the area, detailed in the maps, Erwin then wrote to his father, telling him that the landscape and natural waypoints of the place, an area located in the Borrego Desert in California, correlated perfectly with the maps. On Wednesday, December 17th, 1919, Adolf and Irwin struck out for the Borrego Desert, equipped with little more than their Model T Ford car. After getting caught up one too many times in the deep sand, Adolf grabbed the maps from the dashboard and jumped out of the car, vowing to walk the rest of the way. After all, as he said, it didn't look that far away on the map. Despite his son's protestations, Adolf promptly disappeared over the horizon. The following day, he was discovered at the bottom of a canyon, having fallen badly and broken his thigh bone. The injury was so bad, it required having his leg shortened to fix it, leaving him with a permanent limp. Five years later, he was forced to retire from his job due to the injury all of which gave him more time to devote to his true passion, hunting for the lost mines. However, despite numerous visits to the Borrego Desert, he and his son were unable to find the old Gonzalez claims. It was sometime in the late 1920s, while looking once more through all the maps they'd been given, that Adolf noticed a much smaller map that neither he or Erwin had paid much attention to before. After asking Gonzalez's widow about it, she explained that the map was in fact related to an entirely different set of mines that once belonged to her husband's cousins, the Peraltas. These mines, she said, were located somewhere in the Superstition Mountains. Back at his home close to Washington DC, with a flush of excitement, Adolf consulted the scrapbook of notes and articles that he'd collected over the years concerning all the lost mining claims he'd come across and pulled out one of the articles. Written back in 1894 in the Phoenix Saturday Evening Review, it purported to detail the precise location of the lost Dutchman's mine according to one Julia Thomas. Adolf sat back, completely dumbstruck, his map and the article appeared to be describing the exact same spot. In mid-May 1931, despite protests from his wife and children, but then 67-year-old Adolf Ruth set off in search of the great lost Dutchman. After nine days of driving, he eventually pulled in to Tex Berkeley's Quarter Circle U Ranch, 
close to Barks Canyon at the northern edge of the Superstition Mountains. The numerous ranch hands stared on quizzically from under the brim of their hats as Adolf limped clumsily from the stylish two-door Essex he'd purchased for the journey, dressed in a full pinstriped suit with a steel brace clasped about his waist that ran all the way down to the heel of his injured leg. It was all Tex could do to stifle a laugh when the five-foot-five Adolf announced that he'd come seeking the lost Dutchman's treasure and was looking for someone to escort him into the mountains. From there, he said, he would make the rest of the journey alone on foot. After realising just how serious Ruth was, however, Tex reluctantly agreed to help. After fobbing him off for the best part of a month, Tex finally promised to take him up when he returned from a cattle drive he was due to participate in. No sooner had he left the ranch, however, Adolf drove to another of Berkeley's ranches, where he convinced two of his employees, Leroy Purnell and Jack Keenan, to escort him into the mountains instead, in return for payment and the free use of his stylish car while he was gone. And so it was that early in the morning of June 13th, the three men mounted horses and trekked up into the mountains, where at Willow Spring in West Boulder Canyon, roughly two miles from Weaver's Needle, Purnell and Keenan left Ruth to set up his camp, agreeing to come back in a few days to check on his progress. It was four days later that Tex Berkeley returned to the ranch, horrified to find that Adolf had gone into the mountains without him. Scared for his safety, he demanded Purnell and Keenan go back immediately and pull him out. But when they arrived at his camp a few hours later, though most of Adolf's things were there, it was clear that the man himself had not been for some time. Over the next few days, Berkeley, Purnell and Keenan searched endlessly for Ruth, but were eventually forced to alert local sheriff Chester McGee when they couldn't find him. On June 25th, the sheriff led a posse into the mountains to continue the search, but they too left empty-handed. A few days later, Adolf's son Erwin arrived to help but despite everyone's best efforts, including the use of a spotter plane and photographer donated by the Arizona Republic newspaper, Adolf Ruth was nowhere to be found. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Sign up today and start communicating in less than 48 hours. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You can also log into your account anytime to send a message to your counsellor. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, nor self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available. And with BetterHelp's commitment to facilitating great therapeutic matches, they make it especially easy and free to change counsellors to help you find the right fit. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and unexplained listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. BetterHelp 
wants you to start living a happier life today. It was some six months later, in December, when a team of archaeologists led by Odd Halseth undertook a research trip into the superstitions, looking for evidence of early Native American civilizations. As a heavy rain began to fall, one of the team's dogs, who they'd brought to ward off mountain lions, darted off in the direction of a lone Palo Verde tree at the top of a slight ridge. As it scrabbled about in the dirt, Hulseth walked over to investigate. Smelling a sudden stench of something rotten in the air, he looked down in horror at the sight of a human skull half buried in the sand, with flecks of meat still clinging to the bone. When he pulled it out, he was even more horrified to find what looked like two huge bullet wounds on either side of the cranium. Though Halseth had little doubt it was the skull of Adolf Ruth, he had it sent off to the Smithsonian Institute in the hope that someone there could provide a positive identification. Sure enough, head curator of physical anthropology, Dr. Alex Herdlitzka, confirmed not only that the skull was that of Ruth's, but also that the holes in it were indeed the result of a bullet-related trauma. Just under a month later, on January 8th, Tex Berkeley and former sheriff Jeff Adams were conducting a final search for Ruth's remains when they came across a scattering of bones in loose, torn clothing about three-quarters of a mile from where the skull had been found. Though the hands and feet were missing, most likely taken by scavenging animals, they were able to identify Ruth from his wallet, watch and gun, which had not been fired, that were also found at the scene. Along with the remains and personal possessions, they also found two documents, one being a topographic chart of the surrounding region, and the other a waybill on which a few notes had been written describing apparent directions to the lost mine. Along with those notes was also scrawled in Adolf's handwriting the phrase Veni Vidi Vici, which of course translates tantalizingly to I came, I saw, I conquered. One thing that was not found among Ruth's possessions, or with his remains, was the Gonzales Peralta map, as it came to be known, that he'd taken into the mountains with him to help locate the lost Dutchman's mine. This, along with the enigmatic line he'd written on the waybill, quite possibly the last thing he ever wrote, has led some to speculate that Ruth actually succeeded in finding the gold mine, but was then murdered as a result and had the map stolen from him. Some suspected Leroy Purnell and Jack Keenan, who in the end were forced to flee the region due to the stress, with Purnell moving back to Utah and Keenan heading back home to Oklahoma. 35 years later, Keenan's widow appeared to confirm the suspicion to private detective Glenn McGill, who undertook his own unsuccessful odyssey in search of the mine in the 60s and 70s, telling him that, you know my husband and his partner were never able to find the mine, even with Mr. Ruth's maps. 
McGill took this as an admission that the men had murdered Ruth. Others, however, believed they simply stole the map when they found Ruth's campsite deserted. Dr. Herdlitzka's assessment that Ruth was shot in the head has also been questioned, with some suggesting the injuries were in fact far more consistent with general weathering and more likely the result of the skull being buffeted against rocks as it was dragged about by rainwater and animals, especially since it had already most likely become separated from the rest of the skeleton after being scavenged by mountain lions. Though the absolute truth will remain a mystery, both the Maricopa and Pinal County Sheriff's Office concluded Ruth had died from natural causes. As for whether he found the mine or not, that too remains a mystery. One thing's for sure, he was certainly not the last person to try and find it, nor the last to lose his life in the process. Despite Adolf Ruth's death, his story seemed only to generate further interest in the lost Dutchman, and one after another, the people came in search of fame and fortune, hoping beyond hope to be the first to crack the mystery, and time and time again, many of them failed to make it out alive. All in all, it's rumoured that as many as 600 people have died searching for it, but still they keep coming. One day in late November 2012, three years after Jesse Capon's disappearance, members of the Superstition Search and Rescue Team, scouring an area of Tortia Mountain in the Superstitions, about half a mile from where Capon's white jeep and abandoned camp had been found, spotted a boot sticking out of a crevice about 35 feet up a cliff face. Inside the crevice, attached to the boot, the rescue team discovered Capon's remains. It has been suggested that he simply slipped off the cliff after getting lost on the way back to his campsite in the dark. It is thought that Jacob Waltz, if he'd even been given the location of any such mine in the first place, most likely first discovered it sometime in the 1860s or 70s, then for whatever reason never went back. If so, Waltz's apparently intricately drawn-out directions of how to find the treasure will also have been conceived around the same time. Some years later, in May 1887, only a few years before his death and Julia Thomas's unsuccessful efforts that appeared to have started the whole treasure hunt off, the Superstition Mountains were rocked by an almighty earthquake that shook the ground with tremendous violence. Anyone nearby at the time would have looked up in shock at the sight of huge slabs of rock falling from the jagged tops of the surrounding peaks. And any who ventured in soon after, particularly close to Weaver's Needle, near to where the mine was supposed to be located, would have found a landscape significantly changed from the time before the earthquake struck the time in which Waltz is said to have so carefully laid out his instructions on where exactly the gold mine could be found.
If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.